Thank you so much, John. What a very appropriate prayer for our communion time this morning. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I would like you to turn to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 11. We are studying through the Gospel of John, and we are going to finish chapter 11 this morning. We're going to look at John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. For the last four weeks, we have been looking at Jesus and Lazarus. And it culminated last week as we came to that great miracle where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. They go to the tomb and Jesus says, move the stone, move the stone away. Then he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, who had been in the tomb, dead for four days, comes out. He says, unbind him. And they take off his grave clothes. He is alive from the dead. And that leads us right into this last section of chapter 11. And this is what we read. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple. Now, in the context here, that doesn't mean they went to the Pharisees and said, oh, you should have seen the great miracle. No, it was more of a kind of tattletale. You guys need to know what's going on. This is getting serious. He just raised somebody from the dead. You say, Pastor Tim, how do you know that? Because look at verses 47 and 48. It says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. They call an emergency session of the Jewish religious leaders and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now watch what they say. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The faith of those who did believe was so strong, they were afraid and said, you know what, if we let it go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. So we have those who believe 
and we have those who reject and are afraid. And I want to do something a little different this morning. I want you to drop down all the way to verse, verses 55 and 56, because there's a third group. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, saying to one another, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Do you think he won't even come to the feast? Everybody, everybody wanted to see Jesus. And so the crowd is gathering because the great Passover feast was at hand. And they were anticipating the possibility of Jesus being there. So we really have three groups that react to the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Those who believe, those who reject, and those who are curious. Not believers yet, but they're curious about Jesus. We saw the very same thing in John chapter 7 when they anticipated Jesus coming to the Feast of Tabernacles. There were those who believed, those who rejected, and those who were curious. And you know what's interesting? We have those same three groups today. As the gospel goes forth from churches all over the world, not just in America, but all over the world, there are those who believe, there are those who reject, and there are always those out there who are curious, not yet ready to make a decision, but they sure are curious about this Jesus and who he is and what he did. Now in verse 57 it says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let him know so that that they might arrest him. So that word went out at the feast of Passover. We are going to see as we move along, their intention is to kill him. Their intention is to put him to death, but first they have to arrest him. So if you see him, you're supposed to let the Jewish religious leaders know so that they can arrest him. Now, the heart and soul of this particular passage is found in verses 49 through 52, and I want to go back to those. Caiaphas, the high priest, determines that Jesus must die. But little does he know that he's actually prophesying the substitutionary death of Jesus. In verse 49, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Caiaphas said, Why are you guys in such a panic? Now Caiaphas, according to the Bible, and according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, was a very shrewd man. And Caiaphas, during his days as leader over the Jews, had one main concern, and that was maintaining his power over the Jewish people. He was a cunning, shrewd, very powerful man. And so he is leading this emergency council And he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Other translations have, so that the whole nation won't perish. Guys, the 
The solution is obvious. We need to get rid of Jesus. We need to get rid of Jesus. We need Jesus to die so that our whole nation doesn't perish, so that the Romans don't come and take away our place in our nation. But now watch what happens in verses 51 and 52. Excuse me. In verse 51 it says, and don't miss this, he did not say this of his own accord. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas didn't realize it, but when he says Jesus has got to die so that the nation won't perish, he was just concerned with killing Jesus, but didn't realize he was actually prophesying the coming death and resurrection of Jesus to die for the sins of the people, to die for the salvation of those who would believe in him. He would die not only for the Jewish people, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. We've seen this already in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. He says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And in John chapter 10 and verse 16, he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Now watch. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd. Jesus is going to die not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Oh, Jesus is going to die for those Jewish people who believe and for believers from every people group on the face of the earth. He is going to bring them in. But I want us to think Caiaphas is prophesying this and he doesn't even know it. There are many examples of this in the Bible. Fascinating study if you want to do it sometime. In the Old and New Testaments, how God used people, unbelievers, who were unwittingly used for his plans and purposes. We could talk about Pharaoh of Egypt. We could talk about Nebuchadnezzar. We could talk about Darius. We could talk about Cyrus all unwittingly used of God in ways they didn't even fully understand. Perhaps one of the greatest examples is found in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John are brought before the Jewish religious leaders and told, you are not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And they sent them off, commanding them not to speak in Jesus' name anymore. And so they go back to their fellow believers and they have this great prayer meeting, perhaps one of the greatest prayer meetings ever. And they gather together and they lift up this great biblical prayer. And in Acts 4, verses 27 and 28, it says, they say, they pray, for truly in this city there were gathered together against our holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people, the peoples of Israel. Now watch this to do whatever your hand 
and your plan had predestined to take place. So when they conspired to kill and crucify Jesus, oh, there was Herod, and there was Pontius Pilate, and there was the Gentiles, a reference to the Romans, and there was those Jewish religious leaders who wanted him to die. They all come together to crucify Jesus, but they were only doing whatever God's hand had already predestined to take place. In the Baker New Testament commentary, it says this, a great quote. It says, Caiaphas said what he wanted to say, and the responsibility for the wicked meaning which his words conveyed remains entirely his own. Yet, in God's wonderful providence, the choice of words was so directed, so directed by God, that these same words were were capable of expressing the gist of God's glorious plan of salvation. He spoke that Jesus needs to die. Oh, he did need to die, but not for the reason that Caiaphas thought. He needed to die to bring salvation. So in verses 53 and 54, it says, So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Again, as I've shared with you, he has moved from his public ministry to ministering primarily among his disciples as he approaches the cross. Well, our second point this morning is the death of of Christ. I want to go back to that whole thought that Caiaphas did not speak of his own accord. He spoke the very words that God wanted him to speak, even though he didn't understand how he was doing that. That Jesus indeed was going to die, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered all over the world. Right now, in our day and age, Christ is gathering his church from every people group in the world. Right now, even as we meet, the gospel, the gospel is going forth all over the world in glorious power. And guess what? Some believe, and some reject, and some are curious. You and I are part of the greatest drama in the history of the universe. And we meet together as we send out missionaries, as we take the gospel to our community. We are fulfilling the words of Caiaphas that he unwittingly said. Because God is gathering, Christ is gathering his church from every area of the world. As we share the Lord's Supper together, let us sit in awe and wonder of the worldwide implications of Christ's death and resurrection. You know, we turn on the television. We go online to look at the news. We pick up the newspaper. And you know what we see? We see current events and political debates. But oh, we need to see beyond that. Because woven through all of that, woven through all of that, don't ever forget 
God is on the move. God is on the move all over the world in the hearts and lives of men and women in every single people group all across this globe. Oh, he will die not only for the Jewish people, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. At this time, we're going to share communion together. If you're visiting with us today, I want to give you a brief explanation of how we are doing communion. One deacon is going to pray for the bread and cup. The deacons will hand out the bread and cup together, so you will get both of them. When everyone has been served, I will read a passage of Scripture, and we will eat and drink together. For those of you who are watching by live stream this morning, so glad you are with us. And we want you to know that as we are serving communion here, uh, we're going to encourage you to use this as a time in your own home, wherever you are, uh, as a time of meditation and reflection.